did realize he had a deep understanding the possibility for freedom from suffering, that it is possible to become free from suffering. First, what he realized is that it's not possible to become free from pain, from physical pain, but it is possible to become free from mental distress. And so that is his orientation for us. How can he help us become free of any kind of mental distress. One of the definitions of freedom is experiencing no mental pain or grief. For me, that's a pretty inspiring sounding state. (laughs) Just the idea of experiencing no mental pain or grief. And that is essentially what the Buddha says is possible. He says he found it himself and says it is possible for us. But after he he discovered this, after he realized this awakening, after he had this recognition of the ending of mental pain and grief in his own mind, he looked out at the world and he saw that people were living their lives in such a way that actually reinforced the their own mental pain and grief. That they weren't just living in a kind of a neutral way, but actually they were, they were living in a way that they thought would make them happy, but actually took them, bound them more tightly to this cycle of being locked into a pattern, patterns in our mind of mental pain and grief. So, What is this mental pain and grief? I mean, the the term that the Buddha used is dukkha. The Pali term that the Buddha used is dukkha. And um, the term, that term itself, the derivation of that term is kind of interesting. The, The first part of the word, and some of you may already know this, the first part of the word do means something like bad. And the second part of the word ka means the, uh, the, the, the kind of basic definition of it is the center part of a wheel, the empty space in the middle of a wheel. And so the term dukkha means a bad, empty space in the middle of the wheel. <laughs> so, you know, what, what does that mean? We think about what that actually means. It means, you know, if you have a wheel that's got a bad, empty space... <laughs> in the middle, you know, perhaps that place where the axle goes through is too small. So the, it's too tight. It's, the, the, it's rubs. You know, that, that it's not a, an easy ride. There's resistance in that, in that turning of the wheel. Or perhaps it's uh, off-center, so that as the wheel turns, it kind of goes ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Or maybe it's so loose altogether that as the wheel goes, the wheel falls off entirely. So these ideas of this word, dukkha, give you a sense of the kind of range of mental distress that's covered by this term. It can be a simple sense of something's not quite right. Things are a little bit off here. Just a feeling of just not quite being satisfied with things the way they are. Eh, if it were just tweaked a little bit that way, it'd be better. Or, 
didn't have a little bit of that, you know, could get rid of that, then things would be a little better. That's a kind of dukkha. It's a kind of, the, the term often is translated as suffering, but that seems a bit extreme for that, that word to us, perhaps seems a little extreme for that definition of just this little bit of offness. And this, this term dukkha goes all the way to what we do call extreme suffering, to the times when the wheel is just falling off and we're, we're not able to go anywhere, where we're of, experiencing massive suffering, loss of a partner, death of a family member, um, diagnosis of cancer in our own lives, a terminal, a terminal diagnosis, these kinds of uh, suffering that... Actually, it's not the diagnosis of the cancer or the loss of the loved one that is the actual dukkha for, for the, from the Buddhist perspective, but it's our mental response to it, our resistance to it, the sense, the sense that this is not the way it should be, and the fact that we suffer over that. So the Buddha points to the, the, the dukkha as being a problem in our own minds. It's not the things that are happening out in the world, but it's the way that we are riding with them. I think this is another reason why the wheel analogy is good, because it, it's, the, it's the way that we're riding with the circumstances of life. Is there resistance? Is there a feeling of offness around it? That's where this problem of dukkha comes. So this is the problem that the Buddha was trying to solve. And he Um, he came to an understanding that it was possible to end this dukkha in his own mind. And fortunately for us, he also came to uh, a recognition that there's actually a set of tools that we can use to help us free ourselves from this mental pain and grief. So the path that he offered us is the Eightfold Path. And so I'd like to speak a little bit about the Eightfold Path. I'm not going to cover it in detail, in, in the kind of detail I might ordinarily do in, um, in a Dharma talk, because I, I want to talk about how this path connects with this uh, problem of suffering and how we can free ourselves, how the, this path supports freeing ourselves from this suffering. So I'll kind of overview the Eightfold Path, and then I'll go back and talk about how it supports us to free our minds. So the, the Eightfold Path, just as a kind of a, um, an overview of the parts of the path, there's right understanding. I'll just name them first of all. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So in offering these as a path, he's offering them as a set of practices that will lead us to the ending of this dukkha. So they're not something to just simply read about, but they're actually practices to engage with. So the path begins with this right understanding and right intention. And what this points to is basically that um, the Buddha, as the Buddha looked out and saw people kind of engaging in 
actions thinking that it would make them happy. I mean, one of our main ways that we think will make, that we'll be happy is if I get what I want, I'll be happy. So, you know, engaging in things in that way, we do get a little bit of happiness from time to time, you know. If we actually get what we want, there's a little bit of happiness. If we don't get what we want, there's immediate suffering. We, 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 we recognize that as suffering. If we get what we want, there's a little bit of happiness. And it's like, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's, what's, that's how life is supposed to be. I'm supposed to get what I want. And that's how happiness comes. So that's a kind of a belief, a way that we operate in our lives. Going from thing to thing, trying to get what we want. In a sense, this is, um, we think that if we could line up a bunch of moments where we got what we want, because we know that having what we want doesn't like make us happy forever, but we do think that if we can get what we want endlessly, that is what happiness would be. And if I'm not able to do that, then there must be something wrong with me. Or, or I've got to work harder, or I've got to be able to fix it or control things. So we have this belief around the getting what we want being how we'll be able to be happy. And the Buddha looked at that, and he realized that that actually, that action of endlessly getting what we want just conditions more wanting to have the next thing. That if you actually look in your experience, it's not so much that, you know, when, we, when we're in a state where we don't have what we want, it's not so much the fact that we don't have it that is the, um, the feeling of offness. In that moment of wanting something that we don't have, the feeling of offness is the wanting itself. And this is what he pointed to, that it's not... It's not the not having that causes our suffering. It's the having the wanting that causes our suffering. So he he started to point us through um, a shift of our view. It's like this view that we normally think of in terms of how I can be happy is not going to serve us very well for a deep kind of lasting happiness. But if we instead orient ourselves around letting go of wanting things, wanting to have things that we don't have, wanting to get rid of things that we have that we don't like, this endless kind of manipulating the world to make it just the way I want it for a few moments before it falls apart and changes and then we rearrange again, that's our life endlessly rearranging the world and watching it fall apart and rearranging and watching it fall apart. The Buddha proposes that if we let go of the wanting to do all that rearranging, that's where a deeper happiness will come. And so this is his directing us in this very first aspect of the Eightfold Path. He says, shift your orientation. And the the definition of his shift of orientation is... Understanding the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths are there is suffering. There's a cause for suffering, and that cause for the suffering is this wanting, this craving, this wanting things to be other than they are. Wanting to have things we don't have, wanting to get rid of things that we do have. 
So there's the suffering. There is suffering, and there's this this cause of suffering. There's the possibility that he he promises us from his own direct experience that it's possible for this suffering, this dukkha. We're coming back to this dukkha. Could be very subtle kind of suffering. It's possible for this dukkha to end, and um, there is a path that leads to its end. So this is the reorientation. The Buddha says, you know, we, we, we shouldn't live our lives so much trying to figure out how to get what we want as much as we should figure out how to let go of the things that are causing us suffering. That that's the orientation towards happiness. So it's, it's no surprise that given that his, his uh, burning question was, how can I end dukkha, that his whole orientation around ri- wisdom has to do with the framing of understanding this dukkha. So the Four Noble Truths are set out not just as truths to be believed in, but as actions to be taken. With each of these truths, there's an action that the Buddha proposes. We need to understand suffering. By understand it, it doesn't mean to... Uh, think about it and think about, well, why am I suffering? Well, you know, this pattern that's coming up right now, this, this anger that I'm experiencing, you know, that was, that's, that's deep in my childhood, you know. That, that comes from, from the time when my parents did this to me, and I know that this is kind of how it's all formed. That kind of thinking about is not what the Buddha means by understanding. He means understanding in the moment, what is this experience of suffering? So his proposal is to turn towards the experience of this offness, this rub, this resistance, this feeling of catastrophe if it's that big. What is the experience of suffering? What is it to be a human being experiencing this dukkha? This is his uh, proposal to us as, as part of our path. Understand suffering. Let go of the cause of suffering. Let go of this wanting this letting go may have a kind of, maybe active, it may be that we can kind of actively let go of something that we see isn't useful. But more often, what we end up doing is um, hanging, out with, <laughs> hanging out with this feeling of suffering and this feeling of, wow, I really want things to be different. And in the very hanging out with, if we hang out with it instead of acting on it, if we act on that wanting, it just conditions the fact that the way to happiness, the way to to satisfy that wanting is to get what I want. That's, That's, you know, the way that I can be happy around this wanting is to get what I want. And if we take that action, get what we want, it conditions that belief that that is the way to happiness. So this is a kind of a radical shift the Buddha proposes to turn towards this feeling of what does it feel like to want something and not act on it for a change? What does that just feel like, this, this pull to, to, to want to, to get something or have something? If you watch it for a little while, you'll see that it ends. You'll see that it does pass. And when you see that, when you see that wanting end, you'll see that that there's actually a very deep kind of relaxation and letting go that happens. It's like once the wanting goes, there's no problem anymore. 
There's no dissatisfaction around not, not having that thing. It's the wanting itself that is the, the, the issue. It's the source of our suffering. Then the, uh, the third noble truth is the, um, the truth of the cessation of suffering, the possibility that the Buddha puts out, the possibility that suffering can end. And he says, we have to realize this for ourselves. Nobody can do it for you. It has to be realized yourself. And he said, the path to that is this eightfold path. So this is our reorientation. Originally, initially, as we meet this eightfold path, this uh, wisdom that the Buddha offers us, this reorientation around let go of the things that lead you to suffering, cultivate the things that lead you to to a deeper kind of happiness. Originally, we have to take this kind of on faith. We've heard this and massaged it perhaps a little bit in our mind, thought about it a little bit. And if there's enough of a sense of trust in the teaching, there, there may be a sense of, okay, I'm going to try this. Because the Buddha is not proposing just a belief here. He's proposing actions. He's proposing practices. So putting this out, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, it's not just, okay, here, believe this and you'll be free. It's if you believe this enough, you'll start to act on these truths, and then you'll, you will see for yourself the benefits of acting on these truths. And slowly over time, a gradual letting go of our suffering unfolds. So initially, it's kind of out of hearing the teachings and reflecting on them that we uh, begin to have the intention or the desire, the wish to engage in the practices. So this is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the intention to follow through on this teaching. Right intention is this intention to engage with these practices. This intention leads us towards a, um, a movement to act in the world in a way that will not, as much as possible, not cause suffering. This, uh, it, suffering is our, kind of our guide here. This is the orientation that we, we look at. Is there suffering happening? If there's suffering happening, then we need to understand it. See if we can find what it is that we're holding on to. Let go of that cause. So the orientation is around looking at where is suffering happening in our lives and the lives of others. And so with this intention to act, to follow these practices the Buddha is suggesting, we, we start to engage in the world in ways that will not harm people. So with, with kind of ethical conduct. This is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the next three components of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Lay out sets of practices that we work with in our relationships with others in the world. Wise speech uh, provides some, and they're all phrased in terms of abstaining, abstaining from certain things that would tend to cause harm. So 
abstaining from killing, abstaining from taking what's not given, abstaining from um, uh, sexual misconduct, with wise speech, abstaining from harsh speech, divisive speech, abstaining from um, idle chatter, abstaining from false, false, false speech, idle speech, harsh speech. I can't remember the fourth one <laughs> at the moment. Divisive, harsh, divisive, false, and idle. Um, that, that we you know, look at where our speech, where our actions and where our speech are creating harm in the world. And the Buddha points us to these areas. He says, you know, if you find yourself getting ready to engage in harsh speech, it may, it, it, it's, it's a really high probability that it's going to cause suffering out there. So look at that. It's these, these ethical practices aren't, aren't um, taught as simply, you know, thou shalt not. They're really meant to be engaged in, in a... Um, a way of watching. It's kind of like so one of these things comes up, you know, a, a wish to, to speak in a kind of a divisive way. Well, that person does this thing and, you know, talking to somebody else and kind of creating a division, us versus them. You know, what's the motivation there to begin to look at it when these kinds of, uh, a desire for this kind of speech comes up? It, it's the possibility of it causing harm is great. So what's motivating it to begin to look in our, in our, Experience. What's what's motivating that? So that we can, um, as much as possible, begin to let go of behaviors, speech, and behaviors in the world that cause additional harm. So the second aspect, this uh, this ethical component of the Eightfold Path, is really about harmonizing our relationship with the world. It's not about putting ourselves into a straitjacket, but, but really creating harmony, creating peaceful, a peaceful living situation. So with that um, intention towards non-harming, we begin to, through that exploration of not harming others, we also begin to see how the, um, the ways that we engage in our minds before we're reaching out to harm others. I mean, for instance, if you, if you have anger in your mind and that kind of leads you to, to want to speak harshly. So we, you know, we kind of get to the place where we, we don't follow through necessarily on that harsh speech. Then we start to see that that anger burns. It burns us. And that, so as we begin to let go of the behaviors that cause harm, we start to see the internal states of mind that cause us harm. And this is where this third aspect of the Eightfold Path comes in. We start to to cultivate our minds, the factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So this is a mental cultivation. And this really comes back to the, the kind of crux of where this, um, this dukkha comes from. Because we, um, we see you know, that largely this unhappiness, this dissatisfaction, comes because of how we relate to the world, how we uh, want to arrange the world, wanting to, f- 
to, to have things that we don't have, wanting to get rid of things that we do have. It's, it's the, the, the way that we relate to the world. It's in our minds. The, the, uh, our relationship to the world is something that's coming up in our minds. And I mean, you can kind of see how given, a given situation, it's, we, some people respond some ways, some people respond other ways. It's not the situation that is the problem. It's our response to it. And so since the, the, the whole crux of this dukkha is something that's in our minds, this mental cultivation begins to get at that, um, that problem. The vast majority of our struggles is created by some reactivity some liking something, not liking something, wanting to have something, wanting to get rid of something. So we need to cultivate a mind that can start to look at that. It's, it's, uh, you know, I think sometimes when we experience habitual patterns, I think a lot of us have, we all have kind of habitual tendencies, habitual patterns that we um, engage in that we do over and over again and we see, you know, this isn't helpful. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep getting so angry? Or why do I keep telling myself I'm such a bad person? You know, we just, we have these habits of mind and we don't quite understand why we keep doing it. And sometimes we think, well, you know, oh, I must just be this way. It's, it's hopeless. I, I can't possibly change this. You know, it's been, I've been doing this for so long, there's no hope of changing it. It's not true. It's possible to change our minds. It is absolutely possible to change our minds. So this mental cultivation that the Buddha teaches, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentrations, is the, they're the tools that you need to change your mind. So wise effort is about looking at those qualities of mind, those qualities that come up in our mind that lead us towards unhappiness, lead us towards this dukkha, this suffering, this off feeling. And the three main qualities that lead us in that direction are this wanting to have something, a kind of a greed, the wanting to get rid of things that we don't like, an aversion, and um, a kind of a confusion around, or a misperception around where happiness can actually be found, where, where um, a, a misperception about how the world actually works, how, how reality is structured. That misperception is delusion. And I'll, I'll, I hope I have time to get into that. Uh, a little bit later. So we look at our minds, we, we begin to see how they work, we begin to see that greed, aversion, and delusion lead us into this feeling of offness over and over again. And we begin to see that when we, we act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, this leads us towards more happiness in our lives, more peacefulness, more, um, more serenity. So this right effort is around noticing when 
we're engaging in things that, that, that lead us more to suffering or lead us more to happiness. To cultivate more those things that lead us to happiness and let go of those things that lead us towards suffering. So this is beginning to observe in our minds, and this is the right mindfulness aspect of the Eightfold Path, turning towards our experience, observing our experience. And with a very honest approach, mindfulness brings a great honesty to our practice, to our, to our hearts. With very great honesty, we turn and look at our experience, and we recognize when we're behaving in ways that are not helpful. So the mindfulness allows us to recognize what our minds are doing. And the teaching on right effort guides us in in the direction towards more and more skillfulness. The combination of these two, of effort and mindfulness, making the effort to keep staying connected, keep exploring, keep observing, what is this dukkha, this very first noble truth, understanding the dukkha, coming back to that. that. That actually is one of our big practices. We bring right effort and right mindfulness to bear on our experience. A lot of the time that experience feels off. That very exploration of that offness begins to re-educate the mind it's, it's so interesting that when we actually pay attention with mindfulness to our, the way our mind is engaged in anger or frustration or whatever your favorite pattern is, depression or uh, fear, when we turn to actually look at it, you know, we think, we think, I mean, when I first heard this teaching of turn to look at your difficulties, I thought, well, what good is that going to do? You know, isn't that just going to make it worse? To my surprise, I found out actually, no, it didn't make it worse. It educated the mind. It, what we tend to do is act out of those habits. We reinforce them by somehow believing that if I act out of this anger, you know, I had the belief, if I act out of this anger, it's going to hurt that person over there, and that's what will satisfy me if I see them feeling as miserable as I feel. That's what will make me happy. We act on that. We're not really noticing the suffering that we're experiencing in our own hearts because we're focused, on out, we're focused outwardly. So this reorientation, turn around and look at the experience inwardly, it's a radical shift. And what happens is the mind begins to see, oh, It's suffering in here when I'm experiencing that. And as the mind sees that and sees that actually uh, this is something happening in the mind, you know, this anger is coming up in our own minds, and the mind sees that this thing that's coming up in itself is creating this feeling of suffering in itself, it starts to let it go. Because ultimately, our minds don't want to suffer, they don't want to be in pain but we radically misunderstand where that pain comes from. And when we turn and actually look at this dukkha itself, the mind begins to understand how to let it go 
it begins to understand how it's causing it itself. This is something you may have to take on trust at first, but if you play with it, I mean, in my very first few months of practice, it it became really clear that this was true to me. It did not take long before I realized how true this was, that this turning towards experience, understanding suffering, is the very way, the very path to the letting go of it. So this right concentration is the last factor of the Eightfold Path, but concentration isn't the aim of the path. The, the, the promise of the Eightfold Path is that it, we will become free of our suffering. We will uh, become free of this mental reactivity, this mental um, not liking things to be the way they are. So the concentration and the mindfulness together lead us to a kind of, as I've kind of been describing, how turning towards experience begins to, it's the pathway through the suffering, that the, uh, the mindfulness and the, um, the um, effort together will bring the mind to a place of, concentration of stability, of being able to to hang out with these feelings. That's the concentration, that ability to kind of be stable with experience. And that concentration and that mindfulness together begin to show us the truth of those initial uh, teachings from the very beginning of the path where we started with right understanding. And I said we kind of had to take it as learning and reflection and then begin to engage. As we engage, as we actually connect with the practices, turn and look at our suffering and see that the way uh, to end the suffering is through meeting it, we get a verified understanding of these truths, of these Four Noble Truths. The, the understanding of suffering is no longer some idea. It's, it's, an, it's a deep seeing of how the suffering is created in our own minds. So that the, these practices come together to lead us back, kind of in a cycle, back to a, an understanding of the uh, right understanding and how the intention supports that understanding, and a kind of a deeper level. It's a verified understanding. And so then we, we travel the path again in a kind of a cycle, that the right concentration, mind, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration lead us to a verified understanding of that wisdom that the Buddha offers. It may not be the full verification of it, but it's, 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 a, it's a, a little bit of... Yes, I understand how that works. When I first saw how, how this all works, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is incredible. I actually can see how the mind is leading itself down the garden path to suffering. And seeing that, the mind started to just poof, let it go. So verification and direct experience of the first and second noble truths, and some of the third, 
the, the way the mind can let go of the things that are creating its suffering. So the, the deepening of the wisdom, this, this path is traveled in, a, in kind of a spiral. I think of it as traveling in a spiral in a way that um, um, the more that we understand through this engagement with our experience, turning to our experience, willing to meet our suffering instead of reacting to it, acting on it all the time, the more we do that, the, the deeper our understanding of the Four Noble Truths goes the deeper our understanding of suffering goes, the deeper our understanding of how our mind creates that suffering goes, the more we actually see that suffering let go, and the more we see the benefit of cultivating this path. So we travel it in a kind of a spiral. So I always have too much to say, and I have several more pages, but I think that's good enough. (laughs) So I'm going to stop there and see if there's any um, questions or, or comments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.